When Birth Control by Charles D. Proban, as read by Michael Wyatt. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books, many free Christian resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. This book, The Bible and Birth Control, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in soft cover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. And please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation bookshelf and Puritan bookshelf CD sets. If you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books. Now to our reading of the Bible and birth control, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible and birth control is copyrighted 1989 by the author Charles D. Provan and is read to audio with his written permission. In vogue in Calvin's time was that, to put things in modern terms, the man did not provide merely the sperm. He provided the zygote, in other words, the whole baby, not just half its genes. Thus, Calvin thought that the baby was not conceived, but implanted. Baby therefore got nothing from its mother except a garden to grow in. One medieval medical book taught that the baby was already fully formed, although microscopic, from the instant when it left its father's loins. This is why Calvin regarded coitus interruptus as tantamount to abortion. Moses, however, did not teach this. Moses wrote by inspiration and therefore did not make scientific mistakes. 22. There is one further scientific misunderstanding in the article. On page 13, column 3, first paragraph, it is contended that menstruous intercourse cannot produce children. There is a word for people who believe that. They are called, quote, parents. And that fact does not change the conclusions of the section, quote, reason number five, end quote. 23. The author does not prove his point about the neutering of animals. The passage he quotes only speaks of animals that were to be used as offerings. Good thing, too. If we could not neuter dogs and cats, the world would be overrun with them, and the only alternatives would be left with And the only alternatives we would be left with would be the constant vigilance of sexual segregation and the annual destruction of enormous numbers of our pets. Kill a puppy sometime and see if you think that is more humane than minor surgery. 24. And yet another medical and theological overstatement. In column 4, on page 13, it says, Tubal Quote, tubal ligation, which is merely female castration, is by implication forbidden also, end quote. Tubal ligation is merely female vasectomy. Female castration is rather ovi- ovaryectomy. 
nor can we make doctrines, quote, by implication, unquote. Otherwise, quote, by implication, unquote, we would conclude what the author denies, that lesbians were to be executed as well as queer men. 25. And I wouldn't be as positive as he is that they weren't. It's just that lesbianism would be much less common then and less mentioned. Why? We have to take into account the tremendous value placed upon having children in ancient times. In fact, the, major, the main religions of the Holy Land were fertility cults intended to improve the fertility of men's flocks, their fields, and their wives. Remember that to primitive people, the major source of wealth are fields, flocks, and the children needed to work them. It should also be remembered that among the ancient Greeks who practiced recreational sex, homosexuality was almost preferred by, but the homos still put up with having wives for the purpose of bearing children. Children were that highly valued. 26. Once again, I write merely as the devil's advocate. I am not now disagreeing or agreeing with the author's thesis, just pointing out as a friendly critic the questions that have been answered before this issue is presented as a dead certainty to the church. The writer did a good job in presenting his case. Perhaps he is as well qualified as anyone to answer these questions and finish the job. Rebuttal number two, replying to the devil's advocate by Charles D. Proven. So that our readers may better follow our answer, answers to Pastor Covasini's devil's advocate, we will proceed in the same order as his paragraphs. Our comments upon paragraph three. It is of course legitimate to bring up questions about the views upon birth control, the Apostle Paul himself brings up questions some would ask about salvation, and Peter says that we should not fear questioning of our faith. Paragraph 6. It is true that the nations of the West are committing race suicide. This is because they deserve it. We w wish we could say otherwise. As the scripture says, the posterity of the wicked will be cut off, Psalm 37:38. Because of our culture's desertion of God and His Christ, we are in a period of sad decline, brought about by our own wickedness. Paragraph 7. While it may be true that in the third world some parents sell their children, yet we may also observe that Scripture says, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. Psalm 37.25 it also says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, I, that is, food and clothing, shall be added unto you. Matthew 6.33 But if, in accordance with his secret plan, God would cause a great catastrophe, which would affect the children of believers in a negative way, we may be assured that God has some reason for it, as in the case of Job's children, Job 1, verses 18 and 19, or Joseph's slavery, Genesis 37, verses 39 to 40, and Genesis 50, verse 20. These emergencies do not justify wasting seed, for in the case of a temporary great catastrophe, 
we ought to listen to the word of the Apostle Paul who said during a crisis at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 7.26, those who have wives should live as if they had none, 1 Corinthians 7.29. That is, couples ought to have no sexual relations at all. Note, he does not say that due to the present crisis, I want Christian couples to practice withdrawal or other unnatural non-procreative practices. Likewise, when God told Jeremiah not to have children in Palestine due to the upcoming invasion by the Babylonian army, he instructed him not to get married, which makes no sense if God allows deliberately non-procreative sex in marriage, so that Christian couples do not classify every bad circumstance as a crisis justifying no sexual activity. Please note what God told the Israelites who were slaves in Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Jeremiah 29 verses 4 and 6. Note also that when the Israelites were in great bondage in Egypt, it was still God's will for them to be fruitful and multiply, as Moses says in Exodus 1, verse 7, 12, and 20. We say this so that present-day Christians do not use the, quote, crisis, end quote, of not being able to vacation in Acapulco as an excuse for not having more children of God. Paragraph 8. D.A., which would be the devil's advocate, says that up until approximately 200 years ago, with the coming of the Industrial Revolution, people wanted children because they were a monetary asset. But in saying this, he is not aware of several historical facts which disprove his point. For example, Egyptian contraceptive, quote, medicines are mentioned as early as 1900 B.C. Jewish records also speak of effective methods of birth control utilizing available chemicals. Socrates, a well-known philosopher, mentioned that populations should be kept down to prevent countries from falling, quote, into poverty or war, end quote. Another famous philosopher, Aristotle, mentioned various methods of preventing conception without objection. And why would he object since he was in favor of abortion as a means of population control? The Cretans desired low-level populations and encouraged homosexuality to accomplish this. The Greeks and Romans practiced exposure of infants. Caesar Augustus promulgated legislation to push people into having children, but his attempt failed. The historian Tacitus says, quote, childlessness prevailed, end quote. The Carthaginians and Canaanites practiced unnatural sex and child sacrifices, practices which obviously lowered the population. Pliny the Younger, circa 100 AD, says that he lived, quote, in an age when even one child is thought a burden, preventing the rewards of childlessness, end quote. Against this atmosphere of anti-children ideas and practices, the early church took its stand opposing contraceptives. contraception. 
To list all the church fathers would take up too much space. The non-Christian populations of the empire still practice birth control, viewing children as a burden, as is evidenced by the heated condemnation of birth control by Jerome, Chrysostom, Ambrose, Augustine, and many more. I do not know much about society's view of children after the 5th century A.D., but I do know that the Catholic Church was continually fighting against birth control, which seems odd if, quote, children were greatly desired before the Industrial Revolution, end quote. In the 1500s, Martin Luther wrote, quote, Today you find many people who do not want to have children, end quote. Uh, that's Luther's Works, Volume 1, page 118. Note that he said this some 250 years prior to 1800, and Devil's Advocate starts of the Industrial Revolution. Luther went on to state that the main reason for people's reluctance to have children was economic, the same as it is today. In addition, an eminent Puritan named Richard Stock, uh, 1626, said, quote, Again, in the use of marriages, many men and women, though they desire some children, not many, end quote. Stock opposed birth control, too. Paragraph 9, Devil's Advocate says that having lots of children, quote, would bankrupt a man today, end quote. He says that, quote, children are an unremitting expense, end quote. I would ask, from where does the devil's advocate get his view? From the Bible or from the wisdom of the world? Does not marriage cost a lot? Does this prove that marriage is no longer a duty for those without continence? Paragraph 10, our devil's advocate states, Quote, what concerns me about Provan's article is the failure to recognize these facts and the failure to see how the changing structure of society changes the applicability of various structures, end quote. First, where does Devil's Advocate get his proof that, quote, the changing structure of society changes the applicability of various structures, end quote. He says that in the old days, many children were valued as old age insurance, but now that Social Security is here, the church should reconsider its opposition to birth control. Where does Scripture allow for reasoning which transforms the clear teachings of the Bible into their opposites? Let us listen to what the Word of God says in Isaiah 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Does this not apply to devil's advocate's statement? He says many children, a great blessing in Psalm 127, is now a, quote, burden, unquote, which will result in financial destruction. On the other hand, he has nothing bad to say for couples who deliberately make themselves childless while the Bible consistently calls a great which the Bible consistently calls a great calamity. Where in Scripture is it stated that quote changing society unquote changes the moral precepts of God? Should it not rather be the moral precepts of God which change society? And if devil's advocate's method of interpreting Scripture is acceptable, what well-respected theologian is there to back his view for the first four centuries of Protestantism? Paragraph 11. 
Devil's Advocate says that people who condemn birth control may themselves be in danger of the condemnation of Jesus in Matthew 23, verse 4. I would again ask whether Devil's Advocate views the entire church for its first 19 centuries as under the condemnation of God. Logically, they would have to be because the Christian church has always opposed birth control until one reaches the corrupt and decrepit 20th century. Let Devil's Advocate be aware that his argument is used today by many who would change the rules which the church has held for 2,000 years. We are told, for example, that the church has been opposed to women preachers because of male chauvinism. Now, however, in our, quote, enlightened, end quote, society, when we realize that this is, quote, sexism, end quote, we should change the rules of the church instituted by Paul himself. Nowadays, we are also informed that the church's 2,000-year teachings on scriptures and homosexuality are just cultural and so should be changed. This type of thought leads the church to shipwreck the faith. By the way, I'm not saying that Devil's Advocate is pro-women, elders, pro-homosexuality, or anti-scripture. I am saying that his approach to scripture interpretation, quote, change society, change application of scripture, end quote, is very dangerous and is a major support of the enemies of the church, as well as some of its misguided friends. Paragraph 12. We do not agree. Where does Scripture call children a burden? Scripture rather calls children a blessing and a great responsibility in so many passages we couldn't list them all here. We are not dealing with birth control legalistically, for legalism is demanding that people follow non-scriptural rules such as hand-washing in Matthew 15. Since our opposition to birth control is based squarely on scriptural principles, we are not behaving legalistically, but scripturally. Since this is so, let us apply some other words of Jesus to those who have many children out of obedience to God's command. Take my yoke upon you, for it is light. Matthew 11, verse 30. The burdens of the Pharisees were heavy because they were stupid, oppressive, and unscriptural. Devil's Advocate says that we have to make, quote, we have to make people want children by helping them to raise them instead of demanding that they shoulder the burden out of a sense of duty, end quote. Is this scriptural? Should we not love God because it is a command? Of course, for scripture says, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 38. Should we not also want to love God? Of course. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, verse 19. I love my wife because scripture commands me to do so and also because I want to out of gratitude for her kindness to me. So what's wrong with having children because A, God says it is my duty, and B, they are a great blessing. Children obey parents because they want to please their parents and because it's, they'll get paddled if they don't. Paragraph 13. It is stated by Devil's Advocate that, quote, We cannot assume that shouldering these burdens, that is, having children, will automatically bring about the blessing needed to bear the load, end quote. 
To which we would say, why not? After all, doesn't Jesus say, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6, verse 33. So, if a godly couple seeks to obey God by being fruitful, why shouldn't they, in a godly manner, expect God to help them? Jesus also said, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Matthew 6, verse 26. We would say that this great promise of Jesus applied not only to believers, but also to their children. Devil's Advocate Example of, quote, life in Utah, unquote, doesn't prove anything because, one, Mormons aren't exactly, quote, orthodox Christians, end quote, and two, our culture encourages easy divorce, wifely rebellion, and material dissatisfaction. It is not reasonable that our evil culture would be in effect, is it not reasonable that our evil culture would be in effect in Utah? As responsibilities increase, the ungodly will take the easy way out. But the Christian is not permitted to do so. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Matthew 7, verse 13. And of course, if I am in favor of people not practicing birth control, then it is the duty of myself and other Christians to help out with more than words. Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 1 John 3, verse 18. Paragraph 14. Let no one say that we are in favor of illegitimate children simply because we oppose birth control. Rather, we are in favor of abstinence before marriage and are in favor of natural sexual relations during marriage. Paragraph 15. We are opposed to dinkisms, which is double income, no kids isms. No, chil- no Christian has the right to choose dink, though it may come to some without their having anything to do with it. Is it right for married women to desire something which Scripture calls a shame and a reproach? Paragraph 16. Knowing, quote, why people, even Christians, sometimes consider sterility a good thing, end quote, does not affect the teaching of God. It is Scripture which counts, and it says that sterility is bad, so bad that it is described as sickness, Genesis 20, verses 17 and 18, a disgrace, Luke 1, 25, a curse, Hosea 9, verse 11, and a cause of great misery and bitterness, 1 Samuel 1, verses 10 and 11, and Genesis 30, verse 1. Paragraph 17. Of course, we would agree that Social Security should be replaced by responsible Christian stewardship. The government should encourage people to have godly children, as the scripture says. Quote, a large population is a king's glory, but without subjects, a prince is ruined. Proverbs 14, verse 28. Isn't this happening to the once great but now dying United States? Paragraph 18. Far be it from us to say that Onan wasn't selfish or greedy, for we think that he was all that, but it is scripture which focuses in on Onan's destruction of semen as the cause of his death, 
as Genesis 38.10 says, what he did was wicked in the eyes in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. The church has always taught that willful destruction of semen is an awful deed. Let us look at the death of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts. Peter specifically says that they were killed by God because they lied to the Holy Spirit. But who would deny that lying and being greedy are sins to be condemned on the basis of the same story? In the same way, the scripture says that Onan was killed by God for what he did, and what he did was kill a seaman. So we would say that this is the primary point of the Onan incident. Yet we would agree that the Onan story can be used to condemn greed and theft. The opponents of birth control are not faced with an either-or situation in the matter of Onan, for Scripture still condemns Onan specifically for destroying his seed. It is those who favor birth control who must come up with all kinds of absurd reasons to totally exclude destruction of semen as the reason, or even, quote, a reason, end quote, for Onan's death. The burden of proof is entirely upon them, not us. Devil's Advocate says that Onan, quote, deprived his dead brother's wife of what she wanted, end quote. Of course we would agree with this part of DA, uh, Devil's Advocate assertion and move on to an even more important question, namely, quote, what is it that God himself wants for married couples, end quote. Is it not be fruitful and multiply? Genesis 1.28, New American Standard Version. The Osborne Confession says that Genesis 1, verse 28, proves that God created men for procreation. Osborne Confession, section 23, on the marriage of priests. The Westminster Confession alludes to the same verse when it says that marriage was instituted by God Quote, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with a holy seed, end quote. The confession quotes Malachi 2, verse 15, which speaks of marriage as proof of this doctrine. It says, quote, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring, end quote. And is not birth control intended to thwart the goal of the sex act, the creation of children? The facts are these. A. According to the Bible, God creates, nurtures, and causes children to be born. And B. People are not pleased with God's plan, so they practice birth control to prevent God from sending them more children. Isn't this perfectly obvious? Listen to God's word in Ezekiel 16, verse 21. You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to idols. Again, in Ezekiel 23, verse 37, God says, They even sacrificed their children whom they bore to me. God here condemns the Israelites for killing his children. Children of believers are here called my children by God. And by birth control, we prevent God insofar as it lies with us, from sending more of his children into the world, children which would otherwise be conceived and nurtured according to the mighty power of God. Thus, as the Pharisees of old, we nullify the commands of God by our traditions. Matthew 15, verse 3. Paragraph 20. 
The problem is not that I don't understand Calvin, because he is quite easy to understand. The quote, the the quote problem unquote is really for devil's advocate to convince us that Calvin is an heir when he ver- viewed birth control as murder and abortion. For if Calvin is correct, then the churches of today are filled to the brim with unrepentant murderers and abortionists. What does devil's advocate offer to prove that Calvin believed in the, quote, garden theory of reproduction, end quote? Nothing. Further, if Calvin did believe in the garden theory, then why does he say that Onan, by washing, wasting his seed, quote, tried as far as he was able to wipe out a part of the human race, end quote? If the garden theory is true, Calvin had no need to add this phrase to his exegesis. He would have said, quote, Onan actually did wipe out a part of the human race, since there are little fully formed people in the sea, end quote. Lastly, even if Calvin did believe the garden theory, what does that prove? Calvin does not say, quote, and we know Onan was bad because of the garden theory, end quote. He does not even mention it. In what way does, quote, modern science, end quote, refute Calvin's view of Onan? Modern science certainly agrees that the human sperm is a cell unlike any other cell. It is alive in and of itself, and it moves by itself. And killing the sperm kills the life which, according to Job 10, verse 10, God forms into people. Abortion, infanticide, and birth control are all just tools to eliminate children who people don't want in defiance of God's revealed will. If people weren't worried about God sending unwanted children their way, why would they practice birth control in the first place? After all, you don't need to prevent what cannot possibly happen. At this time, we would like to point out a weak spot in our opponent's armor, namely, his reliance upon the ethical conclusions of, quote, modern science, end quote, when it comes to birth control. Our view is that the Holy Scriptures are to be our source for theology. The Church should not reject the seven-day creation because of what pagan geology professors say about rock formations. We should not get our views on predestination from a scientific atom-particle diffusion patterns, which, supposes, which supposedly disprove predestination. And likewise, we should not get our views on birth control from genetic engineering and eugenic, eugenic researchers. Our views as Christians should come from the Bible. When you want some poison gas or a neutron bomb, see a scientist. When you want to know if using these weapons is morally defensible, consult the Bible. Let us not forget that the greatest, quote, scientific achievement, end quote, of this century was the development of the atomic bomb, a great moral accomplishment for post-Christian man. Paragraph 21. Our friend asserts that Calvin believed in, quote, implantation, end quote, not conception. But if one looks at Calvin's statement, he says, in quote, in order that Tamar might not conceive a full future human being, end quote. Please note that the foregoing capitalized word in Calvin's original Latin is concipere, that's spelled the C-O-N-C-I-P-E-R-E-T, which means conceived, 
as in conception. And please note the great importance which scripture applies to the semen. Levi was in Abraham's loins, Hebrews 7 verse 10. Christ was in David's loins, Acts 2 verse 30 and 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. The genealogies in the Old Testament and the New Testament are reckoned by the men, not women. Matthew 1, Luke 3, Genesis 11, verses 10 to 26, Ezra 2, verses 61 and 62. We all died through Adam, not Eve. Romans 5, verse 17. Light comes from the semen. Job 10, verse 10. Paragraph 22. Devil's Advocate says that we are wrong because we say that, quote, menstruous intercourse cannot produce children, end quote. Our original article in Christian News erroneously stated that menstrual intercourse was sterile. We have corrected this oversight in this edition. He says that, quote, this fact does not change the conclusion of the section, reason number five, end quote. But, as a matter of fact, it doesn't change our conclusions at all, for we specifically allowed for minor exceptions. We said in our paper that, quote, withdrawal is meant to be sterile and is most of the time, end quote. See reason number five of chapter one of this book. We admit that it is possible to become pregnant by sex during menstruation, but only just possible the same way it is possible to become pregnant by the method of withdrawal. Nonetheless, it is in fact practically sterile, as was apparent some 2,000 years ago. The Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria refers to this fact now verified by observation. For further information, see page 33 of Pregnancy, Birth, and Family Planning by Alan F. Guttmacher, M.D., and that's G-U-T-T-M-A-C-H-E-R. Paragraph 23, Devil's Advocate is correct in saying that we did not prove our point about Scripture forbidding castration in animals. Our original birth control article in Christian News stated this, quote, Take a look at Leviticus 22:24. This verse forbids offering defective animals to God, but it says more than that. It forbids the castration of animals. We see from numerous Bible passages that God cares about animals. This is a protective law for them, end quote. Because of insufficient evidence, we have, quote, softened, end quote, our original paragraph into the paragraph now present in our booklet, paragraph 5 of reason number 6. In any case, this does not destroy our point, for castration is still called a blemish for animals, and is therefore still a blemish for humans. Unless we wish to say that blindness and being crippled are not blemishes for humans, though they are for animals. Paragraph 24. Devil's Advocate Restricted Definition of Castration is technically correct. We, however, were using, quote, castration, end quote, in its wider definition, which is, to emasculate, to geld, to deprive of virility or procreative power. Since tubal ligation certainly does deprive the female reproductive system of procreative power, in mostly the same way a vasectomy does deprive the male reproductive system of procreative power, 
We feel justified in referring to both as castration. Devil's Advocate says, quote, Nor can we make doctrines by implication, end quote. But on the contrary, many times scriptures prove things by implication. For just a few examples. One, David's eating of showbread, 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 6, proves that healing is okay on the Sabbath, Mark 2, verses 23 to 28. Two, God's care for oxen treading grain, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, proves that ministers should be paid. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 18. 3. The Israelites gathering enough manna proves that Christians should share. Exodus 16, verse 18, and 1 Corinthians 8, verses 13 to 15. 4. The birds getting grain proves that God is concerned with us. Matthew 6, verse 26. 5. Evil men doing good things proves that God is even more good towards us. Matthew 7, verse 11, and Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. 6. Women shouldn't be elders proven by Eve's being deceived by the devil. 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 to 14. And so, since proving things by implication is a scriptural method of interpreting and applying scripture, we feel entirely justified in reasoning that since castration or damaging of the male reproductive organs is, is described in very negative terms, it thereby follows that castration or damaging of the female reproductive organ is also viewed by God in a very negative way. Since this is so, women are not allowed to get tubal ligations. Paragraphs 24 and 25. Concerning lesbianism, I reject as unproven his by implication statement that lesbianism is worthy of the civil death penalty. Lesbianism, though evil, is nowhere ascribed a death penalty in any Jewish or Christian source that I am aware of. Devil's Advocate says, without proof, that lesbianism which must, was much less common. To us, it would seem that in a culture where men were openly homosexual, that women, partly out of reaction, would turn to themselves or their own sex. After all, once the natural order of God is given up, there's nowhere to go but downhill. Paragraph 25. Devil's Advocate mentions the, quote, great desire of ancient people for children, end quote, a statement which he does not prove. I am aware of many cultures which view children with disdain. While it is true that the nations which surrounded Israel had religions which are called, quote, fertility cults, end quote, it is also true that these cultures mainly valued fertility of crops and animals, not children. In fact, one of the most powerful methods, is methods of worshiping the fertility gods, such as Moloch and Shemash, was by child sacrifice and non-procreative sex. These things were done not to increase the number of children, but to ensure peace and food. It would also be enlightening to look at Greece, which Devil's Advocate says, quote, highly valued, end quote, children. Plato, one of the greatest of the Greek philosophers, was in favor of laws that would prohibit childbearing after the first ten years of marriage. He was also in favor of what we would call, quote, zero population growth, end quote. 
As we have stated earlier, his disciple, Aristotle, thought abortion was okay. We know of only a few pagan Greeks expressing, quote, pro-children, end quote, views. They were ignored, so much so that about 150 B.C., the Greek general Polybius, P-O-L-Y-B-I-U-S, said, quote, In our time, all Greece was visited by a dearth of children, and a failure of productiveness followed by our men's becoming perverted to a passion for show and money and the pleasures of an idle life, and accordingly either not marrying at all, or if they did marry, refusing to rear children that were born or at most one or two out of a great number for the sake of leaving them well off or bringing them up in an extravagant luxury, end quote. Does this ancient Greek attitude towards children sound familiar? It should, for this same mindset is rotting the core of Western and Eastern Europe, as well as the United States, the areas once, which once were the bastions of Christianity. Conclusion we believe that the questions and statements of our devil's advocate do not negate the Bible's opposition to birth control. We hope that many of our readers, including Pastor Kovacini, would come to agree, thereby causing them to receive with joy many more gifts from God. In closing, we would like to thank Pastor Kovacini for his devil's advocate paper. We appreciate his taking the time to, consider, to seriously consider a subject which many today ignore to their own hurt. Charles D. Proven. Chapter 3, Protestant Theologians and the Onan Incident, compiled and edited by Charles D. Proven. This is a quote from Martin Luther. Quote, Today you will find many people who do not want to have children. Moreover, this callousness and inhumane attitude, which is worse than barbarous, is met with chiefly among the nobility and princes, who often refrained from marriage for this one single reason, that they might have no offspring. It is even more disgraceful than you find that you find princes who allow themselves to be forced not to marry for fear that the members of their house would increase beyond a definite limit. Surely such men deserve that their memory be blotted out from the land of the living. Who is there who would not detest these swinish monsters? But these facts, too, serve to emphasize original sin. Otherwise, we would marvel at procreation as the greatest work of God, and as a most outstanding gift, we would honor it with the praises it deserves." End quote. Introduction to Chapter 3 Many times we have heard discussions of birth control reduced to Catholics versus Protestants. The defenders of Protestant theology, as they style themselves, will state something along the lines that, quote, Oh well, Roman Catholic tradition is in opposition to contraception, but we Protestants follow the Bible, not tradition. That is why Protestants allow birth control, end quote. We have, seen, we, we have even seen books which state that Luther and Calvin laid the groundwork for birth control by de-emphasizing the connection between sexual intercourse and children. This assertion, which would not see the light of day were it not for the fact of gross ignorance of the Bible and church history, is absolutely false. 
As we have seen in chapter 1, Calvin thought that birth control was murder, and Luther viewed it as sodomy. Since we have heard the above view of Bible believers versus traditionalist Catholics quite often, we thought it would be profitable to research the Reformed view of contraception. The results which we encountered were, in our view, greatly heartening, for the views of the Reformers and their heirs were strongly opposed to birth control. We found that the historic Protestant opinion of birth control was to view it as unnatural, murderous, and sodomitical, as well as a gross sin against God, the Church, and mankind. We agree with the opponents of dispensationalism who often point to the fact that no one at all taught the pre-tribulation rapture view before about 1830, thus demonstrating its great weakness. We will go one better and state that we have found not one orthodox theologian to defend birth control before the 1900s, not one. On the other hand, we have found that many highly regarded Protestant theologians were enthusiastically opposed to it all the way back to the very beginning of the Reformation. We are pleased to associate ourselves with so respected a group of theologians. We also are pleased that those in favor of birth control will find no one in the Orthodox Protestant camp for the first four centuries to ally themselves with. We hope that present-day Christians who advocate, quote, family planning, end quote, will investigate the origins of the birth control movement find it to be grossly immoral and anti-Christian, and return to the faith of, the, of their fathers. This is our earnest desire. In our search for the Protestant view of birth control, we concentrated mainly upon Genesis 38, which is the story of Onan. We did this because of the fact that it is the only Bible passage to explicitly mention a specific form of contraception. Though we often moved into related sexual passages such as Genesis 1:28, Genesis 2, verse 18, and Psalm 1:27 and Romans 1, thereby discovering even more opponents of birth control, we have felt it best, due to space limitations, to list only those commentators who dealt with contraception via the Onan story. In this way, we may thus discover what was, quote, the Protestant view of Onan, unquote. For the purposes of completeness, however, we have also included an appendix at the end which lists the names of our other Protestant theologians known to have opposed birth control. To paraphrase the book of Hebrews, since we, have, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, may our opponents hearken unto our spiritual ancestors and re-examine their own views. May our homes be blessed by true blessings which last. May our holy church be built up and strengthened. May God be honored by our conduct. Amen. Though many today will affirm the non-sinfulness of masturbation, please note the great frequency with which our spiritual forefathers vehemently condemned it. Self-abuse, as many called it, is described as unnatural, perverse, and vile, etc. 
Our readers may question why Onan's deed is used as a springboard for attacks on masturbation, sodomy, and other unclean practices. The reason is this. To our Christian ancestors, the sexual organs were designed by God to perform the sacred function of procreation. Any voluntary use of the sexual organs which thwarted this goal was viewed as grossly wicked. Sodomy deposits semen outside the fruitful womb. Does not masturbation do the same thing? In sodomy, as well as other forms of unnatural sexual relations, the principle of pleasure reigns supreme with the negation of procreation. Does not masturbation have the same characteristic? Thus, Onan was seen as a despicable character who was killed for wasting seed, a sin which applies to masturbators, sodomites, and those who practice birth control. Doubtless, this conclusion will certainly shock those who have imbibed heavily on modern-day, quote, Christian, unquote, sexual manuals. Nevertheless, this is where the Reformers and their followers stood on the subject. As an aside, though a thousand surveys say that 99% of men masturbate, this does not prove the naturalness of masturbation. It is obvious that God has not created the sexual organs for masturbation, or else God, uh, Paul would have said, it is better to masturbate than to burn, instead of it is better to marry than to burn. 1 Corinthians 7, 9. Charles D. Proven. Protestant Theologians on the Onan Incident Henry Ainsworth, 1571-1622 Nonconformist Commentary on Genesis 38-9 Spilled or corrupted, which the Greek translation shed or spilled An unkind and most unnatural fact To spill the seed, which by God's blessing should serve for the propagation of mankind and in this man for the propagation of the Son of God according to the flesh in whom all nations of the earth should be blessed Genesis 22 verse 18 which made the sin most impious and hastened Onan's speedy death from the hand of God Henry Alford 1810-1871 Anglican Commentary on Genesis 38 and 38, verse 7. The history of Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. The object of this parenthetical chapter seems to be to show how near the offspring of Jacob were to falling into the habits and loathsome sins of the Canaanitish peoples. There is no detailed explanation of the reason of the death of Ur, but it would seem to be what follows, verse 10, to have been something connected with the peculiar sins which brought about a destruction on the Canaanite-ish races. Jacob Alting, Calvinist, 1618-1679, Commentary on Genesis 38, verses 7-10. to Note well, what kind of sin Ur's was is uncertain. Some think it was the same as Onan's, but for a different reason. Ur, lest Thamar should conceive and give birth, and something of her beauty be lost. Onan, because she would have borne children, not for himself, but for his brother. The result of this union, the deed of Onan, because he was not seeking children for himself, he did not want to procreate, 
any, lest he should procreate them for his brother. Verse 9, Onan's fate, the indignation of God for this deed, and the just punishment of death inflicted. Verse 10, Christian Gottlob Barth, Protestant, 1799-1862, Commentary on Genesis 38. Their narrative here advances from one sin to another. Judah, by his marriage with a Canaanitish woman, has sons of a dissolute character whom God sees it necessary to remove prematurely from this life. Onan, who had given his name to a far spread and widely desolating crime, acted a doubly guilty part, inasmuch as he treated with contempt a holy ordinance and the promise of the kingdom of God. That promise of the seed of the woman, with which, after the death of the elder brother, he was closely concerned, was a matter of indifference to him. For this reason, he also was cut off by the Lord. Johann Albrecht Bengel, Lutheran, 1687-1752 Commentary on Romans 1, verses 24 and 26 Among their own cells by fornication, effeminacy, Bengal means masturbators here, as may be observed from his comments on 1 Corinthians 6.9 and other vices. They themselves furnish the materials of their own punishment and are at the cost of it. Lust of dishonor, vile affections, English version. See Gerber's book, Unknown Sins, Volume 1, Chapter 92, on Secret Vices. The writings of the heathen are full of such things. Gerber's comments on Onan, to which Bengal here refers, are present in this list under Gerber. Keith Leroy Brooks, Evangelical, 1888, uh, to his death, which is unknown. Commentary on Genesis 38. Contents. Shame of Judah and his sons. Conclusion. The sins which dishonor God and defile the body are evidences of vile affection and are very displeasing to God, often visited with quick punishment. John Brown, Presbyterian, 1722-1787. Commentary on Genesis 38.9. His sin was extremely heinous, not only as it proceeded from envy of his brother's honor and contempt of the promised seed, but as it was horrid and unnatural in itself, nor to the last judgment will it appear what guilt of this nature hath been committed among mankind, nor how fearfully God hath punished the same. Johannes Brunman B-R-U-N-N-E-M-A-N Lutheran, 1608-1672 On Unnamed Vices There are some vices which one may not well name before chaste ears, but which still sneak around among the Christian people as we often perceive from their judicial documents, academic opinions, and common talk, and sufficient reasons. Even so, the onanic sin and malicious spilling of seed occurs more than one probably imagines. It often occurs that unmarried fellows confess that they have known women carnally, yet deny that the woman is pregnant by them. If one asks how they might know that, so much finally comes out that one indeed hears that 
onanic vices have been committed, which is still more wicked than whoredom itself. And I remember that some have confessed in embarrassing documents how they have practiced in lying together with the evil artificial trick of Onan and have spilled it, from which and other abhorrent sins may God preserve the house of Jacob. Sirach 23, that's S-I-R-A-C-H 23. But I do not consider it advisable in the pulpit to pass over these and other sins with total silence, but it is much rather necessary to present them thus at times, though with modesty and passion, and to warn against them so that those who are aware of such sins in themselves or perhaps in others, as if nothing had led them astray to it, understand what the preacher means and how they should avoid such sin as one of the greatest. On July 30, 1668, a case in point of sodomy was presented to us to pronounce judgment about it, in which he who had committed sodomy was 23 years old and took a serious oath before God that he did not know that it was a sin to join with the sheep, goat, cow, or other beast, which ignorance, although it is very great, is to some extent alleged and protected in those handed down criminal documents. But from where else did this ignorance of this man come, but precisely from this, that he had never heard such horrible sins rebuked from the pulpit? George Bush, Presbyterian, 1796 through 1858. Commentary on Genesis 38, verses 9 to 10. It came to pass when he went in and following. The motive of Onan's perverse conduct is clearly intimated in the first clause of the verse. Such a conduct, moreover, in the present instance, was peculiarly aggravated from the fact that the Messiah was to descend from the stock of Judah, and for aught he knew from himself, as we know he certainly did from this very Tamar, Matthew 1, uh, verse 3. Was it not then doing despite to the covenant promise, thus to crush in embryo the most sacred hopes of the world? Abraham Calovius, C-A-L-O-V-I-U-S, Lutheran, 1612-1686, Commentary on Genesis 38, verses 9-10. But when Onan knew that the seed that is, the child, would not be his own if he lay with his brother's wife, he let it fall on the ground and destroyed it so that he would not give seed to his brother. That which he did displeased the Lord, and he killed him too. That much, that must have been a willful, desperate fellow, for this is always a shameful sin, yet much more atrocious than a case of incest or adultery. We call it a sin of the effeminate, indeed, even a sin of sodomy. He was completely inflamed with evil envy and jealous, jealousy, and that is why he would not permit himself to be forced to bear this simple service. Therefore, it was quite right for God to kill him. John Calvin, Calvinist, 1509 to 1564 commentary on Genesis 38 8 to 10 besides he Onan not only defrauded his brother of the right due him but also preferred his semen to putrefy on the ground rather than to beget 
a son in his brother's name. The Jews quite immodestly gabble concerning this thing. It will suffice for me briefly to have touched upon this as much as modestly in speaking permits. The voluntary spilling of semen outside of intercourse between man and woman is a monstrous thing. Deliberately to withdraw from coitus in order that semen may fall on the ground is doubly monstrous. For this is to extinguish the hope of the race and to kill before he is born the hope-for offspring. This impiety is especially condemned now by the Spirit through Moses' mouth that Onan, as it were, by a violent abortion, no less cruelly than filthily cast upon the ground the offspring of his brother, torn from the maternal womb. Besides, in this way, he tried, as far as he was able, to wipe out a part of the human race. If any woman ejects a fetus from her womb by drugs, it is reckoned a crime incapable of expiation and deservedly Onan incurred upon himself the same kind of punishment, infecting the earth by his semen, in order that Tamar might not conceive a future human being as an inhabitant of the earth. Robert S. Canlish, Calvinist, 1806-1873 Commentary on Genesis 38 the unnatural crime by means of which the wicked and wretched young man sought and sought successfully to defraud his deceased brother and defeat his father's ordinance, or rather the ordinance of his father's God, while it stands out conspicuously in the record of its swift and terrible doom as a warning against all abuse of appetite, is at the same time a proof of the depth and strength of his repugnance to what was required of him as an act of fraternal duty. Adam Clark, Methodist Arminian, 1762-1832 to Commentary on Genesis 38, verses 9 and 10 The sin of self-pollution, which is generally considered to be that of Onan, is one of the most destructive evils ever practiced by fallen man. In many respects, it is far worse than common whoredom and has in its train more awful consequences, though practiced by such as would shudder at the thought of criminal connection with the prostitute. Worse woes than my pen can relate, I have witnessed in this engrossing, unnatural, and most destructive of crimes. God and God alone can save thee from an evil which has in its issue the destruction of thy body and the final perdition of thy soul. Whether this may have been the sin of Onan or not is a matter at present of small moment. It may be thy sin, therefore take heed, lest God slay thee for it. Conrad Danhauer, D-A-N-N-H-A-U-E-R, Lutheran, 1603 to 1666. On silent unchastity, effeminacy, incest, sodomy, and foreign marriage. In general, the silent unchastity is called, and this is a Latin term, I believe, in Alaga Genesis, and that's E N A L A G E, second word G E N E S E O S a change of the nature of the genital members and heirs of the disorderly. 
irregular use of the same, and it includes the following vices. Effeminacy, incest, sodomy, and foreign marriage. May the chaste spirit grant us power and grace to treat this matter modestly and fittingly, but to the extent necessary. Amen. Amen. So now, the first silent unchastity is, in Latin, molitis, M-O-L-L-I-T-I-E-S, and in German, effeminacy and softness, the impurity par excellence, the abuse of the body in itself, as the apostle calls it, which is otherwise also called the onastic sin. It is nothing other than an actual unchastity which the person arouses and commits with his member alone without joining with another person. I say, quote, arouses, unquote, because what the nature and its drive does without the person's consent and Horace imaginations does not belong in this category, as also that does not belong here which happens unknowingly in sleep. Unless the person habitually occupied himself with such unchaste thoughts and fantasies or also went to sleep with them or even full of them or did not well guard himself in bed against the enticements of the devil and the drive of original sin which does not rest even in its sleep, in which case such a person is one of those obscene dreamers about whom St. Jude speaks who soil the flesh, are companions of the sodomites, and go after strange flesh. 1 Corinthians 6.9, Ephesians 5.3, Romans 1.24, and Jude 7, 8. 7 and in 8. Although these vices were in previous times not viewed or considered as great and horrible, but were even allowed not only by the heathen, Philosophers see Jerome on Ephesians 5.3, especially by the doghead Diogenes, the cynic, cynic in Greek for canine, who allowed all carnal arousal and semen flow, not only by the old wild brawlers called the Gnostics, on this see Epiphanius, that's E-P-H-I-P-H-A-N-I-U-S but also by the teachers in the papacies C. Navarre N-A-V-A-R-R manual chapter 16 P.M. 232 T-O-L-E-T-1-5 instruct sacred 131 therefore also the same unchastity was much practiced in the cloisters and convents. Some father confessors should confess what some brothers and sisters told them privately. Indeed, if one would, as Bernard of Clairvaux speaks, according to the prophecy of Ezekiel, bore through the walls and barriers of the cloisters and cells and took take a look what evil desire, wildness, and atrocity would one see? Although I say this sin is considered insignificant, indeed a speck of dust in the eyes of the world and of the whole of Babylon, it is still in the holy and chaste eyes of God an exceedingly abhorrent and shameful atrocity, more offensive than common whoredom and adultery. 
because it is more monstrous and runs contrary to nature and God's order. This sin is really an advanced murder of which could have been born of it. Indeed, such filthy persons thereby offer a Moloch sacrifice to the god of the whorish spirit as the heathen in previous times sacrificed their seed to the idol Moloch. May God by his good spirit guard young hearts that they may be on guard against these snares of the devil so that they are not ensnared and later fall totally into open shame and vice. Daniel Defoe, Nonconformist, 1657-1731, on matrimonial chastity. Here Defoe quotes Jeremy Taylor on Onan. And there's no uh, other uh, quote here. William Dodd, Anglican. 1729-1777 Commentary on Genesis 38, 6 and 7 It is not said who or of what family Tamar was, though it is most probable she was a Canaanitess. Nor does it appear what was the crime of Ur, enormous enough, no doubt, to draw down so exemplary a punishment from God, it is plain from this transaction that the practice which Moses afterward enacted into law, Deuteronomy 25.5, was of ancient standing. The same custom prevailed amongst the Egyptians. The crime of Onan shows a peculiarly malignant disposition, verse 9, and it is probable that bad as it was in itself, yet his sin was aggravated with a worse circumstance vis-a-vis -vis his having an eye to the suppressing of the Messiah's birth, since he should not have the honor to be numbered among his ancestors, which might provoke God to cut him off. See Universal History. Acts of self-pollution were always held peculiar, particularly criminal, even by heathen moralists. The Hebrew doctors looked upon them as a degree of murder. Synod of Dort. The Dutch annotations upon the whole Bible, ordered and appointed by the Synod of Dort, 1618, and published by authority, 1637. Calvinist. Commentary on Genesis 38.9. Yet Onan, knowing, see the notes on the preceding verse, that this seed, i.e. son, see chapter 4 above on verse 25, should not be for him. It happened when he went into his brother's wife that he spilled it against the ground or defiled it, etc., the Hebrew word signifying both the one and the other, this was even as much as if he had, in a manner, pulled forth the fruit out of his mother's womb and destroyed it, not to give seed to his brother. Alfred Edersheim, Presbyterian, 1825-1889, Commentary on Genesis 38. How readily constant contact with the Canaanites would have involved even the best of them in horrible vices appears from the history of Judah when after the selling of Joseph he had left his father's house and joining himself to the people of the country both he and his, rap and his rapidly became conformed to the abominations around. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.